Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Leah Cargan. I will be your host today. We are talking to Elizabeth Quay Hutchison about her new book, Workers Like All the Rest of Them, Domestic Service and the Rights of Labor in 20th Century Chile. Dr. Hutchison is professor at the University of New Mexico and associate vice president for equity and inclusion. She is the author of Labor Appropriate to Their Sex, Gender, Labor, and Politics in Urban Chile from 1900 to 1930, which was published in 2001. Her work has been informed by her prioritization of North North and South scholarly dialogue, networks, and publications. Dr. Hutchison, welcome to the show. We are very excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Thanks so much. Could you start off today's show with sharing a little bit about your background with our listeners, starting with questions like what inspired you to study history? What are some of your research interests? And finally, how did you come to study Chile? Well, those are all great questions. Uh, the older I get, the longer the answer gets. So uh, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, but uh, I came to the study of history by uh, roundabout way. I generally introduced myself as a Latin Americanist first and a feminist uh, historian after, um, because I began my work in Latin America in doing research on liberation theology in Nicaragua in the early 80s, uh, then moved to uh, work that was essentially in the field of comparative politics uh, on human rights movements in Chile under the dictatorship. Um, and it was only in graduate school in Latin American studies that I was fortunate to fall in with a pack of excellent historians, uh, both established and in my cohort, um, and begin to teach Latin American history. And it was in that context that I realized that what I really felt passionate about in the field of Latin American studies was work that was deeply historical. Um, And it was also the era of really a rising tide of work in gender history in particular because of um, Joan Wallach Scott's work. So these things kind of all came together for me and I found myself inspired uh, as a teacher to look more to historical subjects than I had in the past. Uh, So now my profile includes teaching in Latin American history. I'm really fortunate to have had a long career at the University of New Mexico, which allows me both breadth and specialization um, in teaching about Latin America. 
And a lot of the work that I do, both as a researcher and as an instructor, is in the history of gender and labor, history of human rights, particularly uh, 20th century Latin America, um, and other topics in uh, politics, uh, Cold War, and uh, revolution. And my research interests, I guess there are a few different through lines. Um, One of them is Chile. I've sort of stayed with Chile through a number of projects. Um, But um, as a labor historian, something that has inspired um, each of my my projects um, in the last 20 years is my fascination with how exclusion uh, is constructed through the gendering of work, how we um, have historically in many different ways and different places, um, as so much good work has shown, um, built into our legal systems and even into popular discourse, certain constructions of what constitutes work. Um, and um, this guided my initial explorations in labors appropriate to their sex, where I was interested in not only looking at sources and some subjects that had um, only been touched by a few scholars uh, and had not gotten enough attention, I think. Um, I was interested in looking at how women's industrial labor uh, was uh, became more visible uh, and was prioritized as a social problem in early 20th century Chile and then moved on to this most recent work on uh, domestic service. Um, which had a lot to do with um, a sort of constant focus in my work on the modern roots of exploitation and the feminization of domestic work um, so that we use history really to understand how these inequalities are constructed differently um, and across time. Um, Chile as a, as a focus, I should just say, uh, again, I was just really fortunate to find my way to that particular focus um, because obviously I was running around Latin America a little bit in the 80s and um, I found myself in Lima working for a human rights uh, bulletin uh, as an intern for about a year and it was from that base that I traveled through South America and uh, traveled in Chile, mostly connecting with human rights activists in the late 1980s um, on the verge of the Chilean plebiscite that drove Pinochet from power. Um, and that led to my master's project on human rights movements. Um, and so it's sort of been an enduring interest in um, Chile's transformations since the, the 80s and Cold War Chile, obviously, that underpins the networks and the kinds of topics that have been of interest to me um, throughout my career. That is so fascinating. And I would love to see and just sit and hear more about this 1980s, 1990s period of you just running around Latin America, as you said. Um, But can we talk a little more specifically about what brought you to this current research project? What brought you to study domestic service in Mm -hmm. Chile? I like to blame uh, economists and feminist Alicia Froman for that. Um, it's something I recount in the introduction to the book that I was a little thrown off, honestly, when I went to meet with Alicia, who had training in history, was a scholar, a very prominent scholar in um, economic circles, uh, worked in Flaxo, Chile uh, in the 80s and the, and the 90s. 
And I went to her as a feminist historian. I said, hey, I'm doing this dissertation on uh, women's labor in early 20th century Chile. I'm interested in these early political movements and women in the industrial sector. And she said, well, why don't you write about domestic servants? That's really the, the story that needs to be told. And I said, well, gee, that's that's great, but I'm already funded for this other project. I don't know what I said, but it, it totally threw me off. But it was a challenge that I never forgot. And it took an awful long time, as you can appreciate, Leah, to write the dissertation, uh, longer still to turn it into a book. Um, and then uh, by the time I was in a position to begin a second project, I went immediately back to that, that challenge. And it was clear to me that the scope of my research on the early early 20th century, early uh, urban Chile, had turned up some really interesting archival sources um, that talked about really the diversity of um, occupations that were included in domestic service, the mixed sex composition of that sector that included gardeners and chauffeurs and uh, people, male, uh, male workers. Um, and so I, I really committed to that to that focus, but it became very clear that the the real sources for this story in the 20th century um, became more interesting, more diverse, more compelling um, as I moved uh, from the 20s into the 30s and the you know latter decades of the 20th century. So. I, in a way, it was an attempt to answer a question about questions about women's labor that had um, emerged in the first project, but had not been really a sustained focus uh, of that work. Um, and um, it, it was time really to think about uh, historicizing what was at the time and remains um, one of the most important labor sectors for women in Chile in the 20th century. So it, it was something I could grapple with and I would grapple with for another 20 years um, was figuring out the scope of the story and how it might also be really another piece of looking at this question of con the construction of inequality and exclusion uh, in the labor market and how that was effectuated in Chile. Oh, wow, that's incredible. Um, you hinted a little bit at my next question, which was really about just defining what a domestic worker is and what you see them as in Chile and what what types of jobs are they doing? Who who are domestic workers? Yeah, I think that's a, a really great question. Um, of course, the definition and, and even the naming of domestic workers is key to the history. Uh, because as we all know, <laughs> as a historian, your, your terminology, your, your search term, your conceptualization of your subject uh, can be expansive or, or narrow and can be responsive to or critical of the categories that are constructed historically. So my definition of what constitutes domestic work is those workers performing uh, some form of reproductive labor for pay or for other compensation, because clearly if we want to take into the scope of this story, um, you know, early Republican Chile, the 19th century, we're going to be looking at a lot of arrangements. Um, and I think Nara Milanich has done a great job at this. A lot of uh, arrangements that are not 
salaried. They're not paid positions, and yet they constitute work outside of one's own family that maintains the reproductive uh, life and health of another family or another uh, person. And um, a lot of that, you know, was not wage labor for much of uh, the 19th century and for certain sectors uh, involved um, capture and enslavement uh, as well, particularly um, in the early 19th century. So I'm really talking about folks who work as cooks, as gardeners, as nannies, chauffeurs, cleaners. Um, They might be live-in or live-out employees. They might not even be looked at as employees. They might be looked at as uh, charitable cases, as someone that's been taken in uh, as a distant cousin, right? Um, In Chile, the practice of employing well, in putting allegados to work, putting to work those people who are incorporated into a family unit from, from outside of it. Um, and I think um, what is not exclu- only true of domestic labor by any means, but to a certain point, point, it kind of reaches an extreme, is that paid reproductive labor just like its unpaid counterpart, right? Just like housework, and I'm making little scare quotes uh, for you, um, is frequently constructed as helping out, right? As beneficence, right? That the the employers are are themselves by feeding someone in exchange for work. That that is the arrangement. It's not, they're not workers, right? Um, And that these uh, relations and ways of naming them create barriers to how these um, people are become visible in historical records and accounts. That is the history of their exclusion from uh, labor regulations as they emerged in Chile in the 20th century. Of their, um, you know, as the trade became more exclusively feminized, uh, of how women and particularly rural women's labor was. Um, really treated as exceptional when it was engaged, when they were engaged in domestic work um, and a way really of uh, kind of cordoning off um, the most important work sector for women uh, from the benefits of the of, um, of labor mobilization and the um, construction of labor codes for the protection of other workers. So I'm really like obsessed with this question of who's a worker? And who are we talking about when we when we define someone as such? And so workers like all the rest of them is the title of the book um, taken from a couple of broadsides by uh, uh, working uh, domestic worker activists um, at multiple times in the 20th century were in campaigns for better labor protection or to what they argued were their rights and their dignity. Um, activists frequently um, argued that all they wanted was to be treated like workers, like all the rest of them. So that that question of definition is actually central to the book and I think central to the continuing story of um, how uh, paid reproductive labor is viewed by the state and by uh, political movements. Um, in your introduction, you share an anecdote about your realization that oral interviews, or what you call a, quote, living archive, quote, were essential to your research on domestic laborers. And you just spoke a little bit about this, about uh, the invisibility of domestic laborers in the archive. So can you share more about your research process and how this living archive helped you 
complete the research on this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, first of all, it was the most fun part. I should just say that, that I think that um, something I try to share with um, the students that I am fortunate to work with is really the joy of connecting with um, research subjects and archivists, um, all the people who really make our work possible when we get off the plane in Santiago or La Paz or wherever we're, we're starting from, um, and to whom I'm, I'm deeply indebted uh, for um, despite the many obstacles and uh, especially in this sector, um, the folks I was interviewing, with the exception of Catholic clergy who were always ready to have tea with me and talk about their work, I was really um, asking people for time, uh, people who uh, didn't have it and gave it gladly. So um, I began this work in the early, I guess we call them the aughts, um, uh, on very uh, several trips to, to Chile, and quickly identified um, some archival documents that um, colleagues had preserved, uh, mostly by reproducing some records that were available in some uh, union offices, um, very small organizations in downtown Santiago, and those people connected me to more people and the folks who did have some more time to talk were older activists. Um, and so, uh, I, I like to credit both their willingness to speak with me and a little bit of serendipity and persistence, (laughs) which, um, allowed me to accumulate, um, an archive of oral history testimonies, um, in those, uh, first five, seven years, um, in which people told me their stories, both of migration to Santiago, uh, their, uh, the ways they became involved in, uh, domestic worker organizations and some of their reflections on ongoing conflicts within the movement or with the church. Um, it's, it's inevitable. I think when you're, working with real people that you work with their real um, challenges and their their problems. Um, and that was something that at times was disruptive to my research agenda, <laughs> um, but was it was what was happening for them. Um, and so I, I'm not a scholar of what was going on in workers' movements in the 2000s. That's not something I've written on, um, but it is something that shaped my access to people and some of the the ways that the stories they were telling me about the 1950s and 60s were structured when they thought back on those earlier times. So the oral history, I should probably say also, at the time I was doing these interviews, which wouldn't have been possible in my earlier project on the 1900s, right? Um, I was reading a lot of this burgeoning field of Latin American uh, labor history, which was, uh, which really centered oral history sources. So um, thinking of, um, you know, uh, Heidi Tinsman, Tom Klubach, Danny James, Florencia Mallon. And what was exciting about that period of time was not only this continuing sort of commitment to living archives and the practice of testimony, of, of letting people tell their stories and trying to be truthful um, about relating them to a new audience, uh, but really some of the new critical tools that we brought to oral history as narrative, 
which I have to say I don't think is a particular strength of my book. I can always tell you which other books to read that do it better. Um, but I was make, having these interviews with a really heightened awareness that we needed to bring some of the tools of literary analysis um, and feminist theory to how we um, how we weighed this particular form of evidence, right, and how we did justice to it as a sort of a living um, archive or representation of of people's experience. And I think the last thing I would say about that is. There are ways that the organizations I work with, when they allowed me to work in their offices and sometimes digitally re reproduce their materials, I did what I thought, what I could to return copies of that digital material to them, to um, reach out to the archives and the magazine collections at the National Library in Chile um, to make sure that they would be more widely available. Um, but um, also, since I present my work a lot in Chile and uh, also publish in Spanish, tried very hard to make sure that these um, these stories, even though they're done, they're pretty much academic speak. These are scholarly pieces, could circulate and be made um, available to people in Spanish, um, because it was clear to me from my first interviews with Aida Moreno, a longtime um, domestic worker activist, and um, I use this in the best way, a really great amateur historian herself, um, that in working with Doña Aida, it was clear that the movements themselves, the organizations, were very interested in their own history. Um, so it felt to me like since I was working in a full-time position in New Mexico and I had the opportunity that there were ways I could close the circle on collecting what um, people wanted to tell me um, and then bringing it back in, in the ways that were available to me. So that's, that's kind of my spiel on oral history, but there are some much better books on it. So <laughs> well, I'm happy to redirect. A good job at bringing it full circle and really bringing out different nuances about what a living archive is and how you've changed it as much as it has influenced your writing. So I think that term living archive is like really profound in this instance. Um, but I want to kind of pivot a little bit to talking about some of the more like meat of the book. Um, and one of the questions I have, which you touched on a little earlier, was about legal exclusion and how the codes are written into, social codes are written into to legal codes. Um, so you argue that legal exclusion of empleadas was done, was built into Chile's earliest legal codes. How exactly was this done? Um, and how does this legal exclusion transform over the 20th century? Yeah, I think to get into the specifics of it, Leah, I'd be like, well, read chapter two, it's all there. Um, <laughs> that's why we write the books. Um, but I'm taking your point, I think um, I'm not a scholar of 19th century civil codes, but I built my own um, analysis from late 19th through mid uh, 20th century in particular, on the basis of work on Latin, Spanish American uh, Republican legal codes, um, where I think, uh, you know, at each juncture where um, legislators and politicians took time to write domestic workers into or out of particular legislative projects, we have signals, right? 
Um, it's also in beyond the civil codes in in the um, the laws of the of the 20th century. If we go to the congressional record, we get the committee debates on what should or shouldn't be included. So it's um, this sort of a superficial analysis would be um, domestic workers were always treated as less than and excluded from uh, legal codes that should have protected them. I mean, that's true. <laughs> but it's significant that the Chilean civil codes um, excluded not only domestic workers from uh, really preliminary recognitions, such as the right to suffrage, but they also excluded rural day workers, right? And in that, I think that other scholars' work has shown um, a real emphasis on how um, a belief in paternalist structures and uh, really uh, what were continuing to be uh, coercive labor arrangements um, in the rural sector and in domestic work um, were really the foundation for naming those two groups as not worthy of uh, citizens' rights, right? Um, and I'm talking in suffrage about male workers suffrage, obviously, since women didn't, no women had the, the right to vote. Um, and that was sort of the foundation, I think, of an understanding that uh, certain types of work and certain workers could be treated separately. And this is not exclusive to Chile by any means. Um, and it wasn't really until the 1920s that an organized movement of domestic workers in Santiago, uh, led entirely by male domestic workers, so chauffeurs and cooks and so forth, um, began to gain traction with liberal party legislators and insist on the citizenship rights of uh, domestic workers. And again, they're talking about male citizenship rights, but nonetheless, they were doing press conferences, they were um, pressing for new legislation, and some of their initiatives uh, eventually ended up in partial form in the um, Labor Code of 1930. And um, it's there that we see a, a more detailed articulation of who exactly is included and excluded in, for example, the right to contract right? Um, what are the working conditions, the hours? And these were treated in the labor code, but they were treated in a separate article from those governing uh, other forms of industrial, commercial, and other work. And specifically, um, the special articles on domestic workers stipulated that employers should make arrangements and write them down, what, what is the work? What are the work hours? Um, what is the pay? But it was not a contract, right? There was even a template, but it was not subject to the law of contract and could not be regulated by the labor office. So there, there was that. There were sort of constraints placed, sort of limits on the scope of rights granted under the labor code. And it was also the first document to institute a really narrow definition of domestic work. Um, someone... Uh, working primarily for one employer, uh, a certain, you know, uh, proportion of hours per week, uh, which essentially excluded people who worked for multiple employers or who were informal, um, uh, were, were ex completely excluded from even the minimal protections of the labor code. So I found that pretty significant, both the struggle for uh, legal recognition um, by an organized urban society, 
um, and who they got to talk to and who they supported in the presidential campaigns and so forth. Um, and the fact that those efforts were led by men and there were women also in the association seemed to me like something really to pay attention to. On what basis were those rights even written into the labor code, right? Whose, whose labor was being recognized as such? Um, and I think it's that sort of very narrow set of gains. It partly explains um, the transformations um, in the definition of domestic worker in the 1930s. Um, and we see this also in Argentina and elsewhere in Latin America. This is a period in which seeing the emergent uh, labor legislation uh, protecting other workers, uh, male domestics uh, took themselves out of the category. <laughs> they formed uh, new associations. They sought special protections um, on the basis of their work outside of the home. Um, sometimes the cooks joined the hotel workers associations. And this contributed to the feminization of um, who we consider domestic worker, who was counted by the census um, by the 1940s. And so in the 40s, the domestic workers associations in Santiago and later throughout Chile were primarily women and primarily led by women as well. And that was a really... <laughs> The, the male domestic workers removed themselves from the category, right? They, they contributed to that feminization because their political benefits and their legal benefits lay elsewhere. And so I think, I think that story of exclusion and thinking about the different reasons and particular political circumstances that led to these outcomes, um, I think is an important aspect that uh, tools of gender history can help us reveal. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there are more changes later in the century, but that's the one that really uh, captured my attention because it feels like a, a flexion point in how the state interacts with these movements and helps to influence even the definition of the work. Yeah, exactly. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Um, so in chapters three, four, and five, they seem pretty essential, like building blocks to your argument and different pieces. Um, these chapters are on the influences of the Catholic Church, the Allende Reform Movement, and women's movements. And they, I think that they present the reader with the materials that they need to, to understand the complexity of the worker's or domestic workers' rights movements. Can we discuss uh, each chapter or each each theme, each segment, um, and what each era meant or how each era changed for domestic workers? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a trick in, in stru- the structure of a book you know, that tries to draw stricter lines or, and periodizations than can actually be sustained, right? Because you have to have chapters in a book. Um, and so I would argue that you've outlined beautifully um, the ways that these three chapters move from Catholic mobilization to mobilization on the left to women's movements. But in fact, these movements and these tendencies are all interactive, right? They're, they're also simultaneous. So what moving forward through history allows us to look at in uh, domestic workers mobilization is the ways that the most visible forms of activism were articulated and in what kinds of alliances. Um, And those have everything to do with those really transformative um, political conditions of Cold War Latin America. Um, And so it's, um, I think it's, it's really interesting to sort of say, hey, well, we know about the Latin Americanization of the Cold War. We know about, uh, you know, uh, the transformations of the left, the rise of liberation theology. Um, How, how does looking at this from the point of view of, of what domestic workers did to organize for the defense of their rights, how does that shed new light on those, how those, um, on that context, right? And how those uh, politics uh, evolved. So that's sort of the the meta story I'm trying to try to get at here. Um, I think of those three chapters, the one that was best known to domestic workers themselves, who I was talking to as of 2002 and so, um, and least known outside of Chile was the influence of the Catholic church. So I'd have to say that's my favorite chapter insofar as it was clearly the history that, for my oral informants at least, was uh, really grounded their life of activism, even if at a later stage they were more engaged with the left or they were more involved with women's movements. Um, In the 1950s and early 60s, the real um, visible activism um, and uh, most effective activism was under the aegis of the Catholic Church. And that had to do that chapter three tells that story of social Catholicism in Latin America, its particular strengths in Chile, um, the emergence of the young Catholic workers movement, and the really I think distinctive turn or character of the young Catholic workers movement uh, as led by uh, Bernardino Piñera was to focus on domestic workers as a sector, right? As a, as a focus, not just the young people, the young women, the, the young industrial workers, most you know, male, but the domestic workers, it was considered a sector that the church for various reasons had an obligation to cultivate um, as a sector, a hyper-exploited sector, right? So that chapter is really about the efforts of the Catholic Church to uh, create a space um, that was actually self-funded by activist domestic workers uh, to create regular publications, to have a legal office and um, uh, primary schooling and occupational classes that were offered to domestic workers, many of whom uh, who accessed these centers in downtown Santiago uh, were recent migrants from the countryside. And as such, um, 
you know, when they did finally get a half day off in the week, this was where they would go and where their employers would let them go (laughs) because they understood they were going to be among clergy. They were going to be engaged in religious activities. And because the leaders of this movement were very careful to um, uh, uh, describe their efforts in a context of um, Catholic humanitarianism and the dignity of work and the protection, offering protection and support for the virtue of these young women who've arrived from the countryside. So it's, a, it, and they also wrote a lot, right? They, they self-published, they translated works from other um, Catholic worker movements. Um, so there was a lot of material there. And I think because of the challenging moment that these older activists were going through, it was a time that they really wanted to talk about. Right? They wanted to talk about the origins of their struggle for rights. Um, and the fact that Chile was a place where they had significant support from key sectors of the Catholic Church also made it made a difference. They had protections that in other Latin American countries were weaker um, and or, or non-existent. So I talked most about chapter three, just to sort of get that story out there and to think about how that period of mobilization with Catholic support was fundamental to uh, really building what became a national structure by the late 1960s. Um, Again, with some very different impulses within it. Some of it was about evangelization. Some of it was about workers' rights. But you basically had centers in um, most of Chile's provincial cities set up by the late 60s where people could go with their free time and seek services or engage in, you know, writing letters to political figures or becoming engaged in a legislative process. So I think that is one reason that's that's really of the three of what I would consider the key chapter. Um, if we were to move forward in time at the transformations in that movement and the um, increasing uh, salience of the non-Catholic but still involving Catholics uh, union movement, which was a separate association, um, we see that there was movement within um, the left uh, as well as uh, among the workers themselves towards both uh, uh, Christian democracy and the popular unity uh, projects. And it was in popular unity that these sort of came to fruition in a new set of legislative proposals that were um, not only worried about renaming uh, domestic workers, uh, avoiding the use of the term domestic, which they considered dehumanizing, um, but also naming them as workers uh, and seeking specific labor rights like uh, limits on hours worked per day, uh, mandated rest periods um, during the week um, and during the workday, um, severance pay, and a whole series of things that had long been granted to other workers. Yeah, but trying to write these into law in a project sponsored by the socialist Carmen Lasso in 1972, um, a process that was subject to national discussion among the organized workers, um, got some support from other sectors of the labor movement, and then was abrogated by uh, the coup of 73. Of course, that did not Come, become law. And we don't see evidence of these initiatives becoming law until the transition to democracy in um, 1990. 
So um, I could talk about women's movements, which is the, I guess, the third chapter you were prompting me on um, to say it was really the um, alliance of uh, key uh, older domestic worker activists with feminist scholars and intellectuals in the 1980s that first drew my attention to key players and key archives that were going to become important um, for writing about the period of the dictatorship. Um, as was so often the case, and this was something I looked at in my earlier work on human rights movements, the reconfiguration of political alliances under dictatorship is a really fascinating and complicated story. But what we see by the early 80s is um, basically stemming from um, feminist self-criticism about um, their reliance on women who worked in their homes um, and a critique of housework and the demand for paid housework. These are debates that Chilean feminists and intellectuals were engaging in. They sought out and built um, a sustained alliance with the leaders of both the Catholic uh, domestic workers movement and um, the secular union in an effort to really break down barriers, class barriers among uh, women and uh, create a anti-dictatorial uh, broader women's movement, and this is happening in other sectors, right? The feminists are also going into poor neighborhoods and trying to ally, bring health initiatives to poor women and so forth. Uh, the sort of, you know, mix of people willing to explore new alliances, cross-class alliances in this period is quite significant. Um, and domestic workers were not targeted very much by the dictatorship. They were perceived as apolitical. And so they had some space in which they could explore um, working on women's issues with feminists and trying to um, uh, build a project for enhancing their rights and alliances that would carry through the end of dictatorship. And that was actually quite effective. You could see that in the early 90s, that the tr transition brought some immediate benefits and visibility to uh, domestic workers' struggles for rights. So I think what I would say is that um, talking about this all in the abstract and sort of at a, you know, high level, um, kind of takes the fun out of these stories. Um, not all of which is fun. We're talking about a brutal dictatorship. Um, but there are some pretty amazing ways that domestic workers use their invisibility as political actors to support struggle against the dictatorship. And that's, they're not completely invisible, right? I mean, the head of the domestic workers union, um, you know, gets arrested while making a public speech at one of the major women's mobilizations um, in, in Santiago, the Caupolicanazo. But um, they're at, a, at another level, they're writing petitions, they're, they're asking the dictatorship to write them into labor law. Um, and they're sort of looking for opportunities, even under authoritarian rule, to insist on their status as workers. And ironically, they get farther in, in that struggle um, in some ways under the dictatorship than they had under popular unity. But you can read the chapter to see that irony come out. No, that's perfect. Leaning into another one of my questions was about how, like asking what organization and protest look like. And if you wanted to share perhaps another anecdote, anecdote from, um, from one of your interviews, I'm, I'm curious about 
how it changed, which you've just commented on slightly, and then what what it looks like now, like what is happening now with um, this type of activism and protesting in Chile with as, as far as it goes to domestic workers? Well, now is really different. It's a long time since the 80s, which in my study ends in the period of transition. And there's some pretty important um, global as well as obviously domestic transformations that shift uh, what all social mobilization, what all political mobilization looks like. Um, And I'd have to break the last 20 years into at least three or four periods to answer that question. (laughs) I could could do that right now. Um, But uh, organization and protest, I mean, I think I've alluded to this, um, if we think about the sweep of 20th century Chile, not only does who's organizing on behalf of a domestic workers change, the gender composition most markedly, um, but also the, um, you know, this sort of uh, protection and impulse from the church, uh, especially um, felt in the 1950s. Um also brought with it, um, you know, incredible access to workers in the homes where they were employed, um, because the Catholic expansion um, in Santiago and then in the late 60s into other provincial cities relied on really going to the parishes and convening domestic workers in the parishes. And they could be convened for catechism which you can imagine would be a really good reason to ask your employer for an hour off from work, <laughs> right? Um, but um, they, so they brought a, this kind of legitimacy in, within which um, these workers were clearly interested, not only in individual betterment, like acquiring occupational skills, uh, but also bettering the conditions of their trade. And so I think sort of the massification of these politics really relied on that um, protective and legitimizing uh, mantle of the church. And part of what's interesting about the um, Catholic worker movement more broadly is the way that this was always true, right? That the struggle for workers' dignity and rights was, um, you know, articulated in, um, you know, a social Catholic vein um, with the appropriate sanction from bishops and popes and and, uh, church doctrine. Um, And even as liberation theology became more prominent in these movements, it still um, offered sort of a core space that had allowed organizers to approach workers in the in the homes where they worked and allowed those workers to leave those leave homes so that i think when people talk about the impossibility of mobilizing domestic workers which believe me in the historical record is a constant uh refrain it's almost as much as you won't find them in the archive which is just not true they're like all over the archive Um, I think what they're referring to is that the specific challenges for collective action are different than a bunch of minors, right? (laughs) The working conditions, the conditions of politicization, of extra work gatherings, they're all different. But I think what this trajectory of mobilization and sustained mobilization through the 50s, 60s, and even under dictatorship shows that uh, these workers found a way, right? Um, and I think the ways in which 
um, uh, the Catholic associations were able to rise up in the 1950s. And then particularly uh, after the military coup, they became more prominent than their union counterpart, because the union counterpart obviously was not invisible to the dictatorship, um, shows the really, really astute strategic work they were doing. So what does the mobilization look like under dictatorship is a kind of a good contrast. In conditions where any form of collective organization was um, stigmatized, if not brutally punished, (laughs) they did a lot of meetings, right? They went to the intendente and they registered every time they had an election, they gave him the report on who had been elected president of the association, treasurer, etc. They did, this is very Chilean, they did all the necessary paperwork, right? And they were left alone. Um, they had standing to bring a petition to the Ministry of Labor in 1977 and say, hey, we know you're revising the labor code. Here are eight things, please, 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 we would like you to look at Right. Um, And so they had a kind of they were able to mobilize in a a way that was you really utilize their supposed apolitical status to insist on what they were arguing were their basic basic humanity and articulate that again, even more in religious terms um, in ways that would uh, find some resonance with um, uh, military officials. So I'm not sure I completely answer your question, but I think you started by saying how complicated it is. So I guess I'm affirming that it's, it, it is it is really complicated. Um, but I think to, to give some to credit to some of these organizers who participate in each stage that I'm looking at here um, was their ability to really understand the conditions under which they were organizing um, and maintain... Um, even under dictatorship, ties to more uh, militant anti-military groups, but keep that pretty pretty quiet so that they could do the work for their trade at the same time. It's just brilliant to the complexity of it all. Yeah, it's just well, they, kind they, of, they were brilliant. They did some really great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a hot button question, I guess. Uh, I'd like to know if you would like to comment on the recently proposed and rejected Chilean constitution and how would it have impacted domestic workers today in Chile? Yeah. um, Again, great question of the moment. And um, honestly, I might break into tears if I try to (laughs) try to answer it. We're Chileanists um, for a variety of reasons are are still wrestling with the outcome of that vote on the constitution. Um, it's been a long, closely watched uh, process, and um, to be to be very honest, I'm not only in shock and haven't processed it. I also have had my attention more on um, really the questions of uh, gender equity and protection for sexual minorities that were crucial were written into the constitution. Um, I feel a little bit like, you know, it's ERA all over again. No, you can't have that. Um, But um, uh, at the same time, what gives me some hope, uh, and by way of not answering the question you asked, is that I think that what's already underway and significantly advanced is the legislative work on uh, adoption and implementation of the International Labor Organization's um, Convention 189, which is the one that 
you know, establishes um, internationally sort of um, basic expectation for the protection of domestic workers' rights. And that's an incredibly important convention um, and one that uh, throughout Latin America has been moving forward in fits and starts in different congressional uh, projects. And um, that work will continue with or without a new constitution is, is really my point. The other is um, that uh, the new um, executive uh, cabinet uh, appointed uh, former head of the domestic workers union, Luz Vidal Uriqueo, uh, as the subsecretary of the Ministry of Women and uh, Gender Equality. And she is a prominent and really outstanding voice for uh, workers' rights, for women's rights, indigenous rights. Um, and I think that uh, simply the elevation of somebody from the movement to uh, the presidential cabinet is incredibly significant. Um, and believe me, uh, she has her work cut out for her because, um, you know, prejudice about what a former domestic worker could do in politics um, is uh, runs very deep. Um, and so there have been some controversies around um, attacks against her, social media um, sort of uh, hate directed her way. And I think she's done an incredible job um, insofar as representation is part of this, uh, these politics um, at bringing greater attention to the need for um, advancing these legislative projects, uh, both for women and for domestic workers. Thank you for answering a question. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I think that's an credi- incredible pivot and, and amazing information that we all needed to know. Um, thank you for sharing so much about your book today. I want to conclude by asking the dreaded, what are you working on next question? Yeah, I knew this was coming, right? Um, and I think my my thought about this is I'm still kind of postpartum on the book. Um, it took a long time to get this, uh, thankfully, shorter book uh, done. And um, I think I have experienced this project over multiple stages of my academic career. So I started it as my very first research was when I was a visiting assistant professor um, up in Maine. Um, and then work on the book persisted through getting hired at UNM, becoming associate professor and becoming full professor. So it's been a long time. Um, and in that time, I have continued to work in a couple of different ways. I mean, I think my, my projects in history that are ongoing are collaborative projects as opposed to setting off to write another book, which frankly, right now, especially uh, after COVID, uh, seems pretty daunting. I think we're all pretty exhausted and reconsidering our priorities, right? But I am involved with the Red de Investigadores uh, sobre Trabajadores de Hogar. It's RITAL, is an international group led by Latin American scholars of uh, domestic service. I have to say historians are not the majority in this association, so we try to bring it. Um, but we've held our first na- international Congress and we're now working on an edited volume of new work on uh, domestic service in Latin America. So that's a project that brings me a lot of joy in the sense that 
um, with the book behind me, um, my goal really is to understand and um, elevate the work of other scholars and help us assess where we are now um, and what we know now um, because of, you know, several decades of really important work on lots of different aspects of uh, Latin American domestic service. So that's that's the kind of project I've been working on and, and look forward to. The other pivot has to do with um, my administrative title. I have for, uh, I don't know, almost a decade now, dedicated a lot of time to university governance on the one hand um, and questions of academic freedom. And on the other leadership in research and administrative initiatives um, that are feminist. And it's in that capacity that um, I now work um, I spend a lot of my time not in archives, but working on uh, prevention of sexual harassment in higher education, uh, a project that we have underway at UNM and that I work on nationally with the National Academy of Sciences, which has a, a multi-year project in this area. So um, it's, it's really an opportunity for me as a historian, as a researcher, as a Latin American feminist, um, to work from where we are in um, U.S. academies, uh, U.S. higher ed, to um, uh, stem and prevent uh, uh, sexual harassment that has undermined um, and driven many people from academia, frankly, um, and really address that as a faculty and staff-centered issue of, of the places that we work, which I think we have every hope of making more safe than they are now. Absolutely. Um, I hope that we get to hear more about your work on this in the future because it's incredibly compelling. Um, thank you for coming and being interviewed today. We appreciate you and we look forward to reading uh, workers like all the rest of them, domestic service and the rights of labor in 20th century Chile, available everywhere. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Leah. And thank you, the Journal of Women's History, one of my, my favorites, and uh, to the New Books Network uh, for giving me this opportunity to, to speak about the work. Um, it's incredibly gratifying, and um, I'm grateful that you all are doing the work to help us uh, literally speak to more people um, uh, about our work. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.